Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Mike. I missed you guys last week. I was officiating a wedding in Peoria, and it was a, an enormous blessing to do so, but I missed being here with you guys. So this morning, which by the way, thank you to Michael Uetta for preaching last week, uh, finishing out the Gospel and Life series. Not only did he finish out the series, but he preached on a very difficult subject, the subject of, of how the gospel applies to suffering. So thank you, Michael, for, for doing a great job. So I'm super excited to be jumping back into Matthew today. For the past year and a half, we've sort of been coming in and out of, of the book of Matthew, uh, just working our way through it. And today we're, we're jumping back in with one of the most kind of iconic moments of Jesus's ministry. So we're talking about the triumphal entry. So if, if you're here and you're familiar with Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the Christian holiday of Easter, Palm Sunday is a, is a day where we remember this event, the event of the triumphal entry. It's the moment where Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on, on the week that he was killed. And as we're going to find out, he, he, uh, he, he did so with kind of a bang. So for, for many of us, especially I think those of us who grew up in the church, sometimes the events of Palm Sunday can become like a little bit sterilized where we're sort of used to this idea of like Jesus meek and mild on a, on a donkey coming into the, the city. And maybe when we were kids, we, we made like the paper palm branches and that was fun. But we're, maybe we're a little bit divorced or a, a little bit distanced from exactly what it is that made this act so uh, like earth-shaking for the people at the time, especially for, for those of you who may be you know, familiar with the event, but maybe you didn't grow up in the church. It's like, why is this crowd just over a dude riding a donkey. We're going to try to answer that question this morning. And what we're going to see is that when we, when we take a close, close look at, at what it is that Jesus does here, it becomes clear why this event is so important to Christians and why it was so uh, momentous to the people at the time. So it's becoming more and more common to hear people say that the Christian movement, so Christianity, emerged uh, by, by, by no intention of Jesus. Like, he did not intend to launch a movement, necessarily. Here's what I mean by that. Many people say that Christianity emerged because of a misunderstanding of what Jesus was all about. So you may have heard people sort of separate Christ from Christianity, and they'll say that what Jesus wanted to do, really, is he, he didn't see himself as a person of any kind of authority. Ultimately, what he was advocating was that we love one another, 
And that's, that's very true. Jesus did advocate that we love one another. The, the issue is we sort of hear that through culturally conditioned ears, right? And so when, when we hear love one another, what we really hear is tolerate one another. We sort of hear a message of tolerance. And so we begin to see Jesus as a person who just promoted a message of tolerance, and that was basically it. That was sort of like the core central message of, of his ministry. Now, hear me. Tolerance is a great value for our culture to get behind. We live in a pluralistic culture. There's lots of different religions and, and people from different backgrounds. So if we're going to coexist without, like, killing each other, we're going to have to exercise some tolerance, right? So I think it's a fine value for our culture to, to get behind. But this is where the issue comes in. If tolerance is done right, all it really determines is how I treat other people, right? It only really tells me how I should treat others. I can be the king of my kingdom, the only rule is that I have to let you be the king or queen of yours. And so what that means is, is there's no sort of like deeper meaning putting pressure on me, right? I can kind of call the shots as long as I stick to the no harm principle, basically. And that's why tolerance is such an easy thing to sell, right? It's pretty easy to sell the value of tolerance, which is why it would be really confusing to me if Jesus promoted tolerance and got killed for it. Are you following me, like why, what I'm saying? If Jesus came in his whole ministry, if the core of his ministry was really just, guys, can't we all just get along, and they killed him for that, that doesn't add up to me, right? It seems like that's a pretty benign thing to say. But the issue is that Jesus was killed. His message was, was incendiary enough that he got, like, lots of people really angry at him. I mean, he wasn't killed by stoning. Stoning was kind of the first century equivalent to a lynching. Jesus wasn't killed by stoning. In, in fact, there were enough people angry with Jesus or offended that they were able to move the hand of Rome. Jesus was crucified. In other words, he got killed by the state. And so whatever it is that Jesus was about, it had to be inflammatory enough that, that like a big crowd of people would all in unison Cry at the feet of Pilate, crucify the king. And so I think it's important for us to, to ask the question, what was it that got Jesus killed? Well, part of it was because the message of Jesus was way more, uh, I want to say, totalizing than just a message of tolerance. A big part of why Jesus got killed is because Jesus made an explicit claim about his identity, and that claim frightened people, it offended people. And how he did that, at least a big part of how he decided he was going to make this claim about himself, was through the way he entered the city of Jerusalem on Passover week 2,000 years ago. Many, many scholars think that the event of the triumphal entry and then what he did immediately after it, that, that th these two, two sort of like acts that he pulls off in the city of Jerusalem on the day of his, his entrance, lots of scholars think that was, the that, was like, like the, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the thing that pushed the Jerusalem authorities to want to off him. So here's how I'd like to approach things today. I'd like to look at a prophecy, a fulfillment, and a question, and I'm going to withhold a lot of my application until the very end. And so I think it'll be great for us just to kind of walk through the passage. Let's reread verses uh, 1 through 5. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, 
Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, full of a beast's burden. But first, we're going to look at a prophecy. So uh, imagine this. Are most people here familiar with, like, Mr. Rogers, or at least Daniel Tiger, sort of like the, the reincarnation of, of Mr. Rogers? Most people here, right, familiar with Mr. Rogers? Okay. So... If you guys are familiar with Mr. Rogers, you'll, you'll be familiar then with how every episode starts, right? So the theme music starts, Mr. Rogers walks in, he's kind of singing it, right? And it's always the same ritual that, that takes place, right? He takes off his cardigan, and then he inexplicably puts another cardigan on. Why didn't he just leave the first one on or, like, just adjust his AC? I don't know, but he puts another cardigan on. And then he gets to this bench, and he takes his dress shoes off, and he puts his sneakers on. There's always, like, the flourish where he, right, tosses the one shoe and puts it in the other hand. And so it's this familiar thing. And if you know the Daniel Tiger show, which is a cartoon from the, the past few years, kind of made out of uh, Fred Rogers' legacy, every episode starts with the Daniel Tiger character doing the same thing with the red hoodie now that he, that he gets up. So it's kind of cute. We love Daniel Tiger. So anyways, uh, <laughs> my wife, I was gesturing to my wife, but... So it's this very iconic opening, and my guess is, is that it's so iconic that even without the theme song playing, if I got up here one Sunday and just decided I was going to go through the motions of that opening, you all would instantly know that I was being Mr. Rogers, right? If I just got up and I did the cardigan, the shoe thing, and the shoe toss, you would all instantly know, oh, Mr. Rogers, right? And here's the thing. Imagine you're from a culture that didn't have Mr. Rogers or even Daniel Tiger. And you're here on a Sunday, and suddenly <laughs> this guy gets up, and he is just inexplicably trading a cardigan for another cardigan. And so it'd be a weird thing. That by itself would be weird. But imagine, though, you're in, you're in an audience of people who all get it, though, right? So as this weird, inexplicable ritual is being done, you're looking around people like, <laughs> you know, smiling warmly, and maybe they start singing, uh, you know, a, a theme song that you do not recognize. And so what, what becomes clear is that, that just by going through these motions, I don't even have to say a word. I wouldn't even have to say it. It'd be totally nonverbal. Just by going through these actions, all of us would instantly know what I was doing, and we would all instantly know the significance of what I was doing. It's, oh, Mr. Rogers, right? So for many of us, when we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, we're kind of like the outsider in our culture, right? Like, this crowd is in pandemonium. And as far as I can tell, Jesus hasn't done anything. He's just mounted a donkey and started to ride in Jerusalem. People are like, I'm going to lose my mind over this. But the, the, the reason why is because what Jesus is doing is deeply embedded into cultural meaning. And so all Jesus has to do is sort of go through this simple, you know, like seemingly innocuous act, and suddenly there's pandemonium, right? Everybody instantly gets what it is that Jesus is saying. And so what is it that Jesus is tapping into here? So it all has to do with a Hebrew preacher that had lived over 500 years prior to Jesus. So basically what had happened is for, for 
for a long time, about 70 years, the nation of Israel had been in exile under the empire of Babylon. And basically the Persian empire comes in, they crush Babylon, and Cyrus is a very benevolent ruler, and so he decides he wants people to like him rather than to hate him, and so he lets all the Israelites return to their land. And so all the Israelites return to their land, and what they come back to is, is pretty anticlimactic. I mean, the land is still just ravaged from all the sieges, uh, like 70 years ago. The temple is destroyed. It doesn't feel like this very exciting return home. It's not glorious at all. In fact, it especially fell flat for a lot of the Hebrews because they thought when exile ended, that would be the, the day when God's kingdom would come. In, in other words, it would be the day when all things would be restored, not just their, uh, their land. All things were meant to be restored when they returned, and it was, it was all supposed to come through this figure that they knew as Moshiach, or Messiah. Messiah was a, a figure that, that, that was spoken of in, in their poetry, in their prophecy. He was going to be a descendant of the King David. And the idea is that when he would come, he would bring with him the restoration of all things. And so essentially what we're talking about is a figure who brings salvation. And he was known by different titles, right? So he was known by the title of Son of David. That was a really, really common one. He was supposed to be a, a descendant of David. He was also known sometimes as the Son of Man or the Servant, as this kind of like representative of all of humanity. And so these returning exiles, they were expecting not just a return to the land, but the, the arrival of the Son of David. And so they, they get home, and a lot of them thought like, man, exile's over, but this is not how things were supposed to play out. And so they get deeply disillusioned, apathetic. There's a huge letdown. And so this prophet Zechariah shows up, and he starts preaching. He starts preaching to get them to, to basically continue to follow the Lord, to rebuild the city. And he, one of the things that he, he says in one of his prophecies, he, he says, make no mistake, Messiah will come. And when he comes, he's going to come not as a warlord on a charger. He will, he will do something that kings do actually during times of peace. He's going to show up on a donkey. It was customary for, for kings to, to ride on a donkey during peacetime. So your king is going to come to you as a king announcing his coming. Here, here's how the passage actually goes. So rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then he continues, and it's, it's all this poetic imagery of sort of the, the ending of of Violence in favor of, of the peace of God's kingdom. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the water of Egypt. So it's this idea that, like, at the moment when Messiah enters into Jerusalem on his donkey, it's the moment when the salvation of God has broken into the world. A, a salvation that when the whole process is finished will be from sea to sea. All things will shift under the kingdom of God. You know, and Zechariah is saying a day is coming when you will see Messiah come in peace. And he will come on a donkey through the, the, the walls of Jerusalem. When we see that, it's the beginning of, of all things being put right. So you have to imagine how comforting this, these words would have been for the people in that really weird 
uh, dissonant time where it's like we're back home, but things are still terrible. And you have to imagine how comforting this would have been that, yes, Team God is here. Honestly. I mean, this would have been something that, that if you were a first century Jew growing up in like the days of Jesus, you would have heard this passage uh, preached at synagogue. You would have overheard rabbis preaching on it to their disciples. And likely while you were growing up, you would have heard your parents comfort you in this. So this is a a deeply embedded cultural thing, this passage, this prophecy. Who's that guy? All the Jews who still held out hope for Messiah had this image in their mind. Messiah is going to announce himself by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. So that's the prophecy. Now the fulfillment. So a little recap of where we are at in, in Matthew. In chapter 19, Jesus begins to leave Galilee, where he's done most of his public ministry. So he's going to leave Galilee, and what he's doing is he's going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. If you were a Jew living in any of the surrounding regions around Jerusalem, you would have made this trip multiple times a year. It was a long trip, like 100 miles, but you would have made it multiple times a year, most likely on foot. And so Jesus is doing what, what most Jews in his time would have done. But here's what's different. What we saw as we walked through chapter 19 and 20 is that as Jesus is going along, he's like being followed by this enormous crowd of people. So as he's going along, he's still teaching, he's healing people, he's moving into Judea, still doing the same thing, healing, teaching, and everywhere he's going, he's accumulating all these other people who are all making their way to Jerusalem for Passover, but they're following him. And there's all this momentum that's beginning to build. Because I think this question is, is, is now occurring to the crowd where they're like, man, we hear this guy, guy feeds thousands of people miraculously. This guy is definitively interpreting God's law, like he's claiming the authority to do that. He's healing people. He teaches like no one we've ever seen. Is this Messiah, right? And so this whole crowd of people begins to gather around Jesus as he's making his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And, and I think it's because all of them are wondering, is this the son of David? Here's the other thing that's really interesting. There's been a change in Jesus' behavior, too. So earlier on in Matthew, you guys might remember this, Jesus heals two blind men, and, and when they ask Jesus to heal them, they, they call him son of David. So they, they call him a kingly title, like a, a Messiah. They call him Messiah. So he heals them, and then he tells them, let's all be hush-hush about this whole son of David thing, right? So he, he, he kind of gives them a gag order. He tells them, like, tell no one what, what has happened to you. Most likely because Jesus didn't want this huge rumor spreading that he is Messiah before he could kind of establish what it was that he was actually about. And so he would tell people, let's let's keep this quiet. Right before this scene, like right when Jesus is about to arrive at, at Bethphage, he encounters two more blind men. And they too call him son of David. And there's no gag order. This time, Jesus is letting the crowd call him son of David. They, like, he's allowing this, this rumor that he's Messiah, Messiah, he's allowing that to become, you know, like, heard by everybody. I mean, people crying out in the streets, son of David. And so this whole crowd, they're following Jesus, and all of them are wondering, is he Messiah? Okay, so Jesus makes his way toward the city, and everything stops. Jesus gets to a little town called Bethphage, which is like on the base or riding up giant hill called the Mount of Olives. So Jesus arrives at Bethphage, and everything stops. 
kind of have to imagine this from the perspective of the crowd. Like if you were in this crowd, you'd be like, there's all, we're all this momentum, we're walking on foot, and we're literally, like, we can see Jerusalem ahead of us. Why are we stopping? Then maybe if you were really close to Jesus, you would see him take two disciples aside, and he'd send them into the nearby village. You know, we'd all just be waiting. We'd all just be waiting to figure out what it is he's, he's, he's up to. Well, it turns out that some sort of arrangement has been made. Jesus has made an arrangement, like, unbeknownst to all of us with, with somebody in this village. And so after a while, what ends up happening is these two disciples return, and they're pulling with them a donkey. And, and the foal, the, the baby. So two reasons why that's the reason. So the first reason is because we've come all this way on foot. Who here is asking for a donkey for the last mile, right? Like, who gets, uh, like, a, a 99 of the 100 miles, and then it's just like, I can't go on. You need to get me a donkey. You know, it's like, all right, fine, we'll go to the village to get one. Like, nobody's going to do that. Like, why, who, who's going to ride the last mile on a donkey when we've done 99 in sandals, right? So that's the first reason why this is weird. Here's the second reason why it's weird that a donkey would be pulled in. There's this ancient source that seems to indicate that the custom in the first century is that on, on Passover week, you don't enter the city on an animal. You, you always enter on foot. Right? So there's an ancient source that's sort of like documenting the, this, this custom. So it would have been weird for anybody to ride on an animal. It would have actually been kind of sacrilegious, right? It would have been offensive for somebody to just like mosey in on an animal. Out of a sign of sort of respect and, and piety, you'd, you'd enter the city on foot. So who is it that's riding a donkey? And so all of us in the crowd, we'd be watching these two disciples guide this donkey up the hill, and then we'd watch them take their cloaks off, and put them on the back of the animal instead of saddle pads. And then we would watch Jesus get on the donkey. Jesus would not have to say a word. He wouldn't have to stop and like turn around and be like, let me explain what I just did. There would be none of that. All he would have to do is get on the donkey and begin riding into the city. And all of us would understand the significance. All of us would understand And that's exactly what we see happen with the crowd. Like, the crowd's like, don't have to tell me twice. They start taking off their cloaks and laying them at the feet of the donkey. I mean, this is like a first century rolling out of the red carpet, right? So, like, the whole crowd, everybody's pulling off their cloaks. And from that, that last mile to the city, so that last whole mile, people are laying their cloaks at the feet of this animal. I mean, the, the whole crowd goes nuts. I mean, it gets to the point where people are actually going and sawing off the branches of trees to like, take the leaves, because the cloaks aren't enough. It's not worthy of him. He's worthy of more, more than just the cloaks. So they're taking the branches of these trees, and they're throwing these branches down at the feet of this donkey so that every single step it takes will not be on the bare earth, but on something laid down for it. So the whole mile, this crowd is, is, is going nuts, and then this chant begins to break out. Hoshana! Hoshana to the son of David! Hosanna to the son of David! which is sort of like, Hosanna means save us, which is significant. At this point, it, it, it sort of had become, you know, synonymous. It was sort of like, hallelujah meets God save the king. It's kind of what Hosanna meant. And so the whole crowd begins to basically, it's like a coronation in the UK. I mean, where that, that moment where the whole crowd breaks into God save the king. 
God save the king. That's what they're chanting as Jesus is walking in on this donkey. So they're laying down the, the cloaks, and there's branches being thrown to the ground, and the whole crowd is erupting into Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to Messiah. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The whole crowd is going nuts. Now, if you were in Jerusalem at this same moment, Jerusalem's built on a hill. So in most parts of the city, you'd be able to see what was coming according to Matthew Henry. And so from your perspective, you're also watching this. And what you're watching is this one dude on a donkey surrounded by just like, you're watching this donkey being headed up by people laying their cloaks on the ground, and, like, people are at trees. You'd be seeing, like, the trees shaking as people are breaking the branches off. I mean, it would be, like, almost disturbing to, to see this. I mean, where, where just living in Jerusalem, as a Jew in Jerusalem, you too, you too would know what Zechariah had said, that this isn't somebody that uses your faith. This isn't somebody whose ministry was in your city. You would have heard Hosanna being called in the country that summer. I'm sure you would have heard of Jesus. But you weren't in that area. You didn't go to Corinth. It's funny, translators, they, they can sometimes be pretty conservative with the words they use to translate. And I understand why. Like, you want to assume less about a word rather than more. Okay, so... The translators here, they say that the, the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred up when Jesus walked into the city. Stirring up is what I do with cream and coffee in the morning, right? In like five chapters, this same word is going to be used to describe the effect of an earthquake. What Matthew is saying is that when Jesus busted into Jerusalem, that city was rocked. That there was no mistaking what was going on. That like this whole crowd of people came into the city gates surrounding, surrounded by this guy on a donkey and there was no mistaking for the crowds in Jerusalem what this meant. They just weren't that excited about it. But from the Galileans to the Jerusalemites, everybody knows exactly what Jesus is saying. But here's what's important for us to recognize. I'm going to reiterate that. That the whole, this whole effect that Jesus had on these crowds, it wasn't unintentional. Like New Testament scholars of all kinds of backgrounds, I'm talking atheist, Jewish, uh, New Testament scholars, Christian, they all agree that what Jesus is doing here is a full-on claim to being the long-awaited king of God's people and the one who will save the world. So whether or not all of us in this room necessarily think that Jesus was really Messiah, I think it's important at this moment for all of us to recognize he thought he was. Jesus thought he was Messiah. Otherwise, he never would have stood up for the whole thing. Jesus saw himself as the one through whom spiritual restoration would be made available to people. He saw himself as the one who would bring the restoration of all creation. He saw himself as the one that the prophets and the poets of Israel had been writing about for millennia. 
He thought he saw himself as as the prophet like Moses prophesied in the Torah. He saw himself as the son of man described in Daniel, the son of David promised in 2 Samuel. He saw himself as the one who would fulfill Israel's role as the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah. When we get into the cultural context, there's no mistaking it. The people understood perfectly what Jesus was doing. What they might have misunderstood was the deeper significance. They remembered that Messiah would ride into the city on a donkey, but they might have forgotten why. The idea was that God's king was always going to be a political figure. He was always going to be this, this kind of like revolutionary type figure. He was going to overthrow the, the powers over the Jews. He was going to reestablish Israel as basically a global superpower. But Jesus didn't ride into the city on a war horse. He did it on a meek. The revolution that Jesus came to bring about was not a violent one. He arrived at a ki- as a king at pe- peacetime. And the reason why is because Jesus came not to commit violence, but to suffer violence. He didn't come to save people from the oppression of Rome, but from the oppression of something much, much deeper, our own spiritual sickness, which the, the Bible calls sin. He came to establish a kingdom that would bear no resemblance to any of the kingdoms of the world. It would have no territory. It would have no military. It would have no central offices or bureaucracy or lobby. But even so, it would become a social reality through the shared lives of people brought together by God's grace and by God's spirit. And that was confusing and offensive to a lot of people. Maybe that's why the crowds from Galilee are nowhere to be found when the crowds from Jerusalem hit it. to recognize that Jesus was Messiah, but only as long as he was the Messiah they expected. So now a question. The crowds in Jerusalem, when they see Jesus make his way into the city, they say, who is this? Who is this Jesus, right? As you sit here this morning, who is Jesus to you? The reason why I ask that is because I think it's really, really important. No, no matter where you are on the spectrum of exploring Christianity, there, there are many folks here, backing up again, we as, as Trinity, we, we believe in being a, a community that, where you can belong before you believe. But there's many folks here who are just exploring Christianity, and I want to reiterate to you, you are absolutely welcome. We're really glad that you're here and you contribute a lot. And then there's others who maybe identify as Christian, but they aren't necessarily following, and then, and then many of us are, are full-on committed to, to following the Lord letting him shape our lives. I think wherever we are on that spectrum, it's important for us to see Jesus the way that he saw himself, to at least get that if we don't think he's Messiah, he thought he was Messiah. So wherever we are, I think it's really important to to sort of confront that and and to identify for ourselves who do we think Jesus is, because that's going to reveal a lot about you. For, for instance, in our culture right now, I think everybody kind of wants to lay claim to Jesus, right? Everybody wants to kind of feel like Jesus is on their side. And there's lots of stuff that he said that jives with what we're about culturally, right? So he tells us not to judge. We love that. He, he's a, he's, he, he reaches out to the marginalized and the disenfranchised and the materially poor, and that's very in right now. And I'm glad it is. Praise God that it's in. He attacks religious hypocrisy, and we're for that. 
But then there's a bunch of other stuff about him that we, we tend to sort of domesticate, right? So we're happy to feel like Jesus is on our side, but we're a little hesitant to get on his side. So for instance, if, if you're here and you're a mystic or a New Age spiritualist or, or uh, something like that, you may see Jesus as someone who achieved Christ consciousness. In other words, you may think of Jesus as being basically like any other human except he's advanced to the next spiritual stage, and he is, he's showing us how to do that. A lot of time we give Jesus all kinds of credibility. You might be an agnostic, but you might see Jesus as an incredible forward thinker, in-touch moral teacher, but not as Messiah or Lord. And I, I just I want to caution you if, if you fall into either of those categories, because it's, it's like you're kind of giving Jesus some credibility. You're, you're attributing all kinds of wisdom and spiritual knowledge to him. It's like you think he's advanced enough to tell you how to live, but not advanced enough to tell you who he is. So I just, I I want you to be hesitant if you're falling into one of those camps. But then it, it raises the question, why should we actually believe that Jesus is Messiah? Why should we believe that salvation is to be found in Jesus? Well, here's the thing. I think that by six o'clock on the Friday of Passover week, most of Jesus' disciples were asking that same question. Why should we think he is Messiah? Because here's the thing. Messiah was never meant to die. Messiah was never, like, he was never expected to be this guy who would bring about spiritual renewal. He was th- thought of as somebody who would bring political renewal. So that's weird. But then also, he's dead. That was not supposed to happen. Like, the, the whole idea of Messiah is that he was going to show up kick butt, and take names later. Like, that was kind of the, the image of Messiah, and yet here are these disciples following Jesus into the city, and then before the week is over, they watch him just, like, pathetically slaughtered in front of a public crowd. By 6 o'clock on Friday, every one of those disciples are asking, why should I believe that Jesus is Messiah? A crucified Messiah is a contradiction in terms. Culturally, there was, there's just no reason why anybody would believe in that, that, that. It just wasn't even part of anything that was happening. So here's my question. Why is it, then, that out of the followers of Jesus, a messianic Jewish sect was launched, full of people claiming Jesus of Nazareth was Messiah? Do you understand why that's weird? Am I making sense? I know I'm rambling a little bit, but does that make sense? Like, Messiah was not supposed to die, so why would a bunch of Jews who followed a dead man say he was Messiah? Right, that wouldn't happen. Except it did happen. A bunch of Jews who followed a dead man went around and claimed he was Messiah. I'm seeing some blank faces. Are you following what I'm saying? Yeah? Okay. So, why would that happen? Why is it that we have, like, the whole New Testament, all these books, all written with the assumption that Jesus is Messiah? The, the answer that the, that the early Christians gave is because Jesus didn't stay dead. That, like, you're right, a dead Messiah is a contradiction in terms. Ours isn't dead anymore, is what they were saying. And I think it's important for us to let that sink in, especially if you're here and you're exploring Christianity. I'm not trying to rush a decision on you today by, by any means. I, just, I think you need to factor it into to, to the calculus a little bit, right? That, like, 
how is it that Christianity is even a religion? Because a dead Messiah is a contradiction in terms. The only way for the verdict of not Messiah to be overturned on Jesus was for Jesus to raise and be raised from the dead. God intervened to vindicate Jesus Christ. There's this misunderstanding that gets tossed around about the resurrection that it was sort of something that Christians made as like a result of their faith, right? Like we feel this deep connection to Jesus, like such a deep connection that it's like he's with us now. Therefore, I'm going to write on paper that he came back with a body. Which is a weird thing, but that's a misunderstanding that gets tossed around, right? Like it's sort of the resurrection is a symbol for an emotional connection to their Savior, right? And our ongoing emotional connection to Jesus today. So there's this misunderstanding that the resurrection was made up as a result of Christian faith. But I think that perspective is just totally out of touch with first century culture. The belief in Jesus' resurrection wasn't a result of the faith. The faith was a result of Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus has been vindicated, then his act on Palm Sunday has immediate meaning for all of us. It forces each and every one of us to decide who do we think Jesus is. Are we with the Jerusalem authorities or are we with the Galilean crowds? Will we cry Hosanna or will we find ourselves asking, by what sort of authority do you do what you do? Will we worship Jesus, or will we, as we so often do, domesticate him so that somehow, at the end of the day, he's on our side so long as we don't have to be on his? I'm not just talking to those of us in the room who are not committed followers of Jesus. I'm talking to all of us. We all do this. What Jesus did on Palm Sunday was unequivocally say, I am the king. Are you a subject? I want to speak directly to those of us who identify as followers of Jesus. What do we do in response to the triumph of empire? I think we need to change. None of our values need to change. It's a value of worship. And the reason why is because any other response to Jesus is a rejection of Jesus. So we want to be a community that worships the recognizes our king and lives consistently with the announcement of the church from the early days that Christ is Lord. And to do that, it means worship. And I'm not just talking about like singing louder. (laughs) One of the things that we, we talk about here at Trinity is that worship is all of life. All of life lives with Jesus participate in that because he's risen. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord. 
day by day. Thank you, Lord, that you are working that process out. And you're doing it not on the merit of our work, but on the merit of your work. Blessed are you, Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Holy Spirit, be with us now. 